Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate David's list now! After what, baby? Come on! There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur blossoms? Now let's put those here to test our faith. That damn lie! I, I saw him on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man! None of it is true! I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! Welcome back to the Deep Share, my friends. Disclaimer, tonight is not necessarily a conspiracy-driven episode or a alternative history deep dive or anything. Tonight is a little different, and I'm really excited for this because I get to do kind of like a total nerd-out conversation with, with another huge fan of John Carpenter's The Thing, as I'm sure you've noticed, if you've listened to me long enough, you've heard me mention it a bunch of times in many different contexts. But tonight I have uh, an author with me who has written a book called Snowblind, Todd Cameron. Todd, how you doing, man? I'm great, Andy. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for being here. And Todd and I have been trying to make this work for the past few weeks, and we finally got it figured out. And uh, it's great to have you here, man. Uh, folks who don't know, Snowblind is kind of like a, a prequel to The Thing, if you will, or an origin story to one of, in my opinion, one of uh, the best characters in any movie ever, R.J. McCready. And Todd, you have been a huge John Carpenter fan, The Thing fan for a very long time, and you started up Outpost 31, this amazing fan site. Uh, let's give the audience a little background into who you are and how you got interested in this and, you know, became a writer at the end of their end of it. Wow, for sure. Well, I've been a movie fan all my life, and uh, seeing The Thing was a very chance uh, encounter, possibility. Uh, my uncle actually had rented the movie and watched it and the night before and he knew I was a huge movie fan um, and he had a high-tech VCR and you know we didn't have one at the time this is the this is summer 84 nice. so the movie is you know a year and a bit out on on home rental and uh, I'm 10 years old and he calls up my mom and says Todd's got to come over and see this movie and I actually saw the movie in the middle of the summer summer 84 super hot day in the middle of the heat wave scorching scorching hot out and I'm glad that I saw it in the afternoon, not late at night on a winter night, because <laughs> it absolutely terrified me. I oh. mean, my, I remember my mom was furious with my uncle for 
for for what he had shown me I and mean, what what it taught to see over there what happened right because i came home like just completely i couldn't even walk down the hall to my bedroom Holy just terrified <laughs> you know 10 years old seeing this movie very influential inf- influenced little little kid um scared scared witless and uh i remember i got home early saw the movie early got home early it's still sunny and hot out and i actually went swimming with my friends and i actually felt good to like kind of almost forget about this movie because that's how traumatized it was i loved it but i was seriously shaken up by it yeah endlessly drawn to the fear that you didn't understand kind of 10 years old yeah for me it was like predator at at eight or nine or something that was my big one that was like holy shit these movies exist but the thing came a little bit later for me i only saw it by chance i was um I was a huge Halloween fan. I was obsessed Mm -hmm. with Mike Myers, that kind of era of Carpenter. And I was probably 13 or 14. Yeah. 14, I'd say. And I saw the, the traditional lettering of the John Carpenter film on the screen, you know, directed Mm -hmm. by John Carpenter. I'm like, Oh man, this must be Halloween. It looks just like it and turned out to be the thing. I had never heard of it. Nothing. I had no, no preconceived notions of what that film was and it didn't scare me because of the age i was at but it it floored me and yeah it never let go as obviously it it did the same to you (laughs) right never forgot about it and uh and then it kind of it started from there everything just kind of started slowly that that chance encounter of seeing the film via my uncle um a year later so now we're when now we're summer 85 i'm 11 years old he got me a dubbed VHS copy of the movie. So I didn't own a VCR, but I owned a copy of the movie, which kind of, as we're going to fast forward to decades later and how weird that is. Um, (laughs) And then we ended up moving from where we were to Ontario, Canada. And shortly after I had the VHS tape, I ended up getting the novelization by Alan Dean Foster, reading that and loving it and getting the movie poster all in like two weeks span. So I had, I had like the trifecta and I'm 11 years old and I had the, the, the movie, can watch it, <laughs> poster, a really cool poster from a video store and the novelization. So I was flying high. I'm like, man, I got, I got the, you know, the trifecta of collecting stuff from this movie at 11 years old. I was pretty yeah. happy. So that really stuck with you for sure at a young age. That's so cool, man. So we could fast forward a little bit into, um, not necessarily, let's not get to Snowblind yet, but we'll talk about, you know, how this film, where this film took you. Because, I mean, you went to places that I would love to go. You, uh, you went to the British Columbia site. Am I, if, yeah. And that, that's amazing. Now, you did that uh, not for research for your book. You just did that as a, as a fan of the movie, right? As a fan. That was summer 2003, but let's not jump that far ahead. Yeah, sure, sure. After... After 85, there was obviously that huge period of, I actually would forget about the movie for years. Growing up, things happened, right? Uh, Not much happened until I got on the internet, I guess, 93, 94, very, very, very early internet through my dad at home. One of the very first things I looked up was John Carpenter's The Thing. This is going way back, right? Like early internet. And in 97, I found a fan site for The Thing an amazing fan site that does no longer exist. Uh, many of us have tried to find it on like the Wayback uh, website. Can't find anything of it anywhere. I'd love to see it because at the time, and even by today's standards, it was probably a kick-ass website. It was oh. for John Carpenter's The Thing, 
and Day of the Dead. It was a dual two-movie fan site by an Australian uh, who since is, I have no idea where who he is. The, the site is long deleted. I would love to see it. Mm-hmm. In today's world of fans with social media, the thousands of fans we have, tens of thousands of fans, new fans of the movie, they don't even know about this website. Um, so when it got pulled down, and I did communicate with the the owner of it, he told me that he wasn't going to update it anymore. Um, this was 1999. I decided, man, there's got to be a new website because we were getting word that there was a video game coming for the 20th anniversary. Yeah. So I thought, man, we got to do a new website. That's the origin of Outpost31.com. That's awesome. Which I got the idea in 99, fall 99 for that. I had no idea how to do a website back then or do anything like that. It wasn't like today where it's a piece of cake. It wasn't like that for a couple of decades, actually. <laughs> um, now you can do a website in, in, in a day's work uh, on your own. Oh, yeah. Um, but I ended up starting to work on this website through late 2000, early 2001. And we launched it in October of 01 uh, live. And it was a pretty complete, thorough and large website, which only grew over the next 20 years. It grew so much that it needed to be redone completely, which I did on the 35th anniversary in 2017. Wow. Kind of downsized it. It it just got massive, you know, like (laughs) 350 plus pages of archives and and stuff. And uh, I know I've taken some some hits from fans that want to see the entire thing um, again, but it was three people, myself and two others over 20 years. Uh, It's a lot of work. We're not getting paid for any of this stuff. This is all just fan devotion to this film. Um, so there's, you know, I, I think the website right now is a lot more streamlined and effective to the to the new fans who are coming in. And I, I kept it just for the 82 film. If you started incorporating, you know, who goes there, the 1951 film, the 2011, I mean, you're going to bury yourself. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine the original would have its own website dedicated to it or could. At I least. hope so. I love the, the 1951 film. I absolutely love it. Um, and I, I wish there was a fan site for it. But it's a brilliant film and it's a it's a completely different animal than Carpenter's. And that's the whole point. You know, that's why they isn't that why they had Carpenter do it, because they knew he was going to go in a very different direction. I thought I heard that at some point, but well, he wasn't the first choice either carpenter right didn't want to remake 1951 film for another world he wanted to do a a film version of who goes there and one of the most misconceived things out there among fans the the, the most common mistake with thing is that it's a remake of the 1951 film and i think at this point it's such a such that's such a well-conceived error um, that they pretty much dropped trying to correct it at this point. Because <laughs> yeah. um, Rob Bottin, Carpenter, Russell, at the time, producers uh, tried to really promote it as a movie of the novella who goes there. They even released the novella in 82 with the artwork for the film to try and link it to the novella and not the 51 film, but it, wow. it didn't Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I feel like if I had been around at that time period, I probably would have picked up on that and I would have understood. That's a shame. But of course, the thing had a long history of uh, of getting kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of an underdog story, right? I mean, it came out a week or so apart from E.T. and got clobbered in the box office. So you it, know, it came out two weeks after E.T. Hmm. and it opened the same night as Blade Runner. Yeah. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> that's a, that's and a as losing. As we know, it, it tanked at the box office. Mm. You know, that film lost money. Uh, it was right. very, very hard on, on Mr. Carpenter and everybody involved. Uh, they, they, they knocked it at the park. Everybody did. Every single person on that film, you know, from the directing to the really who he's kind of left in the dust is Bill Lancaster, the, the screenwriter on the thing. Right. Because he took who goes there and wrote a screenplay. And that, that is the strength, I believe, of the film. One of the big strengths is, is, is Lancaster screenplay. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I would agree with that for sure. I mean, just his writing would have it would have been completely different had they done it any other way. Uh, just the suspense that he put into it and the character development without even really saying much. You know, it's it was just it's breathtaking how good it was. But um, but yeah, I would love to see the thing if Carpenter wasn't rushed and he was very rushed in by the studio in making this film, you know, it was, his, it was his first studio film and he was given a lot of money at the time. Um, and I would love to have seen if he had a full another year to, right. to do what he wanted to do. Um, thankfully a lot of the, due to being rushed, a lot of it actually worked and worked well. Um, but there's a couple of sequences that I would love to have seen him have the time and the money for the whole team to shoot and do uh especially the ice chase scene from the kennel where the kennel thing gets out onto the ice and they chase it have you read the novelization i've never read the novelization no are we talking Definitely about highly recommended yeah okay yeah and i know that i'm not sure if it's already out i'm behind but it wasn't there a uh or is this what you're talking about the didn't they take his manuscript and weren't they going to reform it into a full novel like his son was involved with it or something after he passed, well, uh, no. What I know is that Bill Lancaster wrote the the, the script, oh, right? And then Alan Dean Foster was hired to turn it into a novelization. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Both no, I haven't. Excellent. I need to. I would love to read the novelization. That would that would be amazing if I. I didn't even realize that that was a thing I could have. <laughs> so I'll probably oh, yeah. get that. I thought you were talking about um, what's supposedly happening with the original manuscript of who goes there. I don't know if that's already happened, but I heard that once oh man, now I'm going to draw a blank on the author's name of who goes there, but his son was supposedly trying to carry it on and uh, release the full manuscript at some point, but maybe that's hearsay. I'm not sure. Yep. No, I think that's accurate. I do know a little bit about that. I know more about the 82 film than I do about who goes there. True. Um, but yes, there was a, I'm trying to look at the book here now. So yeah, they, this is recently, I believe in the last two, three years, they yeah, yeah. pulled out a longer version from John W. Campbell's notes files and re-released it as Frozen Hell. That's um, what it was. Okay. Longer version of Who Goes There. Uh, I did read it when it came out once. Um, What'd you think of it? Uh, it's well, I love Who Goes There. Yeah, absolutely love it, and it has one of the best scenes in it of all. I think. I think the the, the thirty eight novella was was way ahead of its time in thirty eight. I think the 51 film was way out of its time. Yeah. 51 risque scenes that, you know, you wouldn't really be expecting in a sci-fi horror movie. Right. Um, <laughs> very character driven, especially with the female, uh, almost, almost a female lead. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, 82 film again, way, way light years ahead of. Still. Still. Um, I would say I would a say. lot of people bash 2011, but I think it, it does an okay job, but it's, it, when it came out, it made 
no kind of ripple even, you know, let alone what Carpenter's film did over time, you know? Man, so much interesting stuff. Like we said before we even got on the air here, I could talk for hours about this stuff. And I'm trying to keep, just go along with you, but I mean, I can digress and go back into so much stuff. The 2011 film I saw, I saw opening night. Yep, me too. And for what it's worth, I enjoyed it. I saw it in Toronto and I saw it with a girlfriend at the time and I just went to see, to see it for the hell of it and, and, and really enjoyed it. And actually, crazy bunch of connections with that film. Um, so the original... I don't know how to pronounce the director's name, Matthias something, oh, yeah, um, sure. European. Anyway, they reached out to me uh, and asked me if I wanted to come see the film set oh, for, cool. the, for, for the, the prequel. And it turned out it was 20 minutes away. They built the exterior set from where I was living. Oh, wow. 20 minutes away. But they emailed me. I believe it was like a week after I arrived in Australia for three months. Oh man. 20 minutes away. I had no idea. I really wasn't following the prequel news very much. New films, they keep pretty quiet. Yeah. And I didn't even know about it. I had no idea it was where I lived. And by the time I got home in the spring, our spring, uh, they were completely wrapped up filming a winter set up there. So that was the first thing. The second thing I found out was a friend of mine from high school did all the pyrotechnical effects, the live action pyro, uh, practical pyro. Um, and he was actually killed uh, three years ago yesterday in Toronto. Oh my God. He owned a, a film pyro effects company. And he, he wanted to do this in high school. So he actually made it quite big. He was doing movie after movie after movie after movie, big stuff, really big stuff. Thing was one of the many he did in 2011. Wow. And uh, he was doing a TV show called Titans. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Anyway, he there was an accident with a vehicle that they were blowing up. And uh, he was killed three years ago. Crazy. Oh, so sorry to hear that. That's terrible. Jeez, uh, what a dangerous job, but they must have loved doing it. He absolutely loved what he was doing. And that's what his family all said. You know, he it was his dream job and he was loved by many people. And, and Warren, Warren Appleby was his name. Rest in peace, Warren. And um, and you went up to British Columbia with a friend uh, who passed as well, didn't you not? I did, yes. Yeah. Steve Crawford, uh, I connected with him around 1999-2000, before the launch of Outpost 31. Mm-hmm. And he was a damn interesting guy. He was a university professor, um, younger guy, though, mid-30s, incredibly intelligent, gifted, gifted man. Um and he wrote two essays, which I actually kept and are on outpost31.com right now um, oh. for anybody can go and read them under the fan fiction. Uh, he did one called Blair's Calculation of Infection Probability, which is absolutely bonkers because what he did is he ran this whole scenario with like algorithms and it came up with like the exact number that's in the film, 75% chance that this would, somebody would be infected. Right, That's cool. so he did this really cool essay on that, uh, and he's got another one that I can't remember right now, but they're definitely worth reading. Cool, cool stuff. That's awesome. You know, I've looked at that section for a long time, and me, I'm, I've always been trying to be a writer. You know, there's that trying and never finishing anything. But I've looked at the fan fiction thing on your site, and I, I've wanted to try to submit something. So maybe someday I will. You know, it's it's so enticing. <laughs> writing is a whole another animal like we said it's uh 
You know, the hardest thing, and this is on my website, the hardest thing that I found and that I'm seeing from other writers is actually just getting started. Mm. Um, if you can just get started. For me, the day one on Snowblind, I had the entire novel plotted out, outlined. It's all there. I'm definitely a plotter. I can't just wing it. Um, it's, it's complete, ready to go right there. And the same with, the, with my second novel, the exact same case. You've got to get that day one and start. Like just so I did it a lot quicker with my second novel. I said, I just got to bite the bullet. I like pulling the bandaid off and get this get this done day one. You're so nervous. Like you're literally sweating and there's a blank screen and here we go. Um, but I remember it was a long time to start snowblind once it was actually completed as an outline to take that step and say, oh man, I got to write this piece. And right. snowblind took me six and a half months with a five hour day, every single day. Wow. Dedication. That's serious dedication. That's like Stephen yeah, King there. style. There's no other way. Like, unless you want to make it take 20 years. I mean, I hear you, man. I, I, I write a little bit on like a work break or a little bit before bed. It, it, it's never going to get anything done unless I literally corner off time every day. And I know I got to I know I have to do that because I'm, I really love doing it. And it's similar. The way you describe getting into the writing process is very similar to how I have to get into a book. It could be the greatest book I'm about to read that I've been waiting for. And it'll still take me 10, 15, 20 pages. Once that's in the, in the head, then I'm good. Then I want to know everything, but it's mm -hmm. that starting, you got to get through a, a chapter and boom, then you're sucked in. I feel like a lot of people give up on reading in general because of that little, little first oomph you got to give it, you know? <laughs> I give up on movies way quicker than I give up on books. Uh, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I will shut it off. These days, will, my time is precious. I will put something else on, especially with the thousands of good movies out there. Dude, um, yeah. Books, I'll stick it out a little longer, uh, but not so much anymore. Mm. Um, I'm reading a Dean Koontz book right now that I absolutely think is terrible. <laughs> I ran into um, that a lot with him back in the day. <laughs> my third Dean Koontz book. Um, and what I'll do is like with his book last night, I realized this, this, I'm putting this down. Um, I've learned all I can from it as well. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have no interest in the characters or the ending, but gotcha. I've gleaned what I can from his writing style. It's definitely really beneficial, at least for me. Well, they say for everybody to, to read a variety, not just in your genre, um, read everything basically. Mm, I hear that a lot about filmmakers too, you know, and musicians. Um, I'm a huge metalhead. I love death metal and everything. But one of the most amazing things I ever heard a uh, death metal singer say to an interviewer who asked, like, you know, what are your favorite metal bands? He's like, oh, I don't listen to any metal. No, man, I don't want my stuff starting to sound like everybody else. So it was just like really cool. Like, all right. So he's not even going there. That's interesting. It's like the total opposite. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. For <laughs> writing and filmmaking and writing. I mean, they, they recommend the more you read, the more you watch, the better. So Absolutely. I'm a huge movie. I, I'm guilty of watching more film than reading more books. I'm trying mm -hmm. to transition to reading and I should. I basically, I just should. You know, I shouldn't watch a movie every night. I should probably read more, um, which hopefully I get there. Yeah, no, I hear you. I have the same problem with turning the TV off and turning the reading light on. It's it's uh you know it's just a it's a willpower thing. How much how much more energy do you have in the day to be proactively paying attention and 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 seeking it out rather than just receiving it? That's a common thread <laughs> in my house. But uh, I love writing. Absolutely love it. I think it's the one of the best clicks I've had in my life to date. That's had a few and another 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 kind of 
uh, genres or areas of interest, but the writing really clicked and I'm lucky to be here because I don't think I'd ever get to the point of um, being able to focus on, sit down and write Snowblind, make that novel, first novel happen. If a number of things hadn't happened to me, I would still be way into other, other, other activities. Um, so it's like almost like the silver lining thing. Bad stuff has to happen. It opens new doors. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. You have to learn hard work and dedication through trauma sometimes and all different means, but you were also very dedicated. Uh, you were a dedicated swimmer as well. Were you not, you did some epic swimming, uh, thing. What was it exactly? One of the swimming projects I did that was actually related to the Australia uh, trip that I just told you about was I was sponsored to go down there and do an awareness swim for sharks, another passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And I kind of combined the two, swimming and sharks. And uh, we were going to do a project to swim the length, swim the entire Great Barrier Reef from one end to the other, north, south to north. And after a couple months there in Australia, I realized the logistics of this thing was enormous. Basically (laughs) swimming, you know, Miami to Toronto. Wow. With one support boat. So it was a huge project. I ended up coming home and completing the same distance of the swim, but as a stage swim day, swimming in a pool and open mm-hmm. water races and, and all that. Um, but to actually complete that project was just number one. It was just a danger. Yeah. Danger. <laughs> and we could not find an insurance company to insure the project at all, period. You know, oh, at man. one point we were the closest hospital was 700 miles away. Um, so, and with the danger on the reef, uh, there was no way. And I'm thinking, man, do I even want to do this if we could, if you could at that point, you know? So, wow. That is so amazing that you were going to attempt it though. That's, that's pretty impressive. Well, we were going to attempt it. All right. Yeah. We were ready to go. Like we were gung ho then, you know, mm-hmm. is that the only, oh, shark awareness one that you did? Or was there another one? Maybe I'm. Maybe um, I'm... I, I did a lot of the races, kind of dedicated to raising awareness, and was very involved in in, in sharks, animal mm-hmm. rights, and that put me on a whole other path. Um, but I actually I got bet. injured uh, when I got back from Australia. Things were going really, really well. I finished the twenty three hundred kilometer swim, uh, and then I got injured. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of shifted me away from, I would say, athletics, and focusing more on movies and books. Mm-hmm. and uh which was a passion of mine but i just wasn't dedicating the time you know to it that they would have been needed to, to become an author right right wow that's really cool man so you have outpost 31 up and running for a long time you've um you've been invited to the prequel set that's really cool uh i'm curious this is a question that eh, man maybe one of a few but have you ever been in contact with, tried to get in contact with Rob Botine? Was no, he I haven't actually. No. no, I've been very fortunate to um, meet about half the cast, meet That's Carpenter. Cool. Uh, I haven't met Kurt Russell. It would be really cool. To <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> um, the cast have all been really, really cool. Uh, the Richard Mazer really sticks out as being one huge he's a really big dude yeah like six six three or six four really awesome guy all the guys were great uh wilford brimley got to meet him before he passed away oh that's so um didn't meet donald moffat and he's since passed Uh, but the very first interaction i had with one of the cast was for eight years i had this event called think fest up in canada um we're gonna have to jump back to that and just talk about that for a little bit sure because I guess it was the third year we were doing it. It was 2003. 
Uh, we come back already from the filming location. And out of the blue, I guess, I don't remember the initial setup even, but I guess I emailed one of the actors, Joel Polis, who plays Fuchs, um, and I forgot about it. This was, I think, I don't remember the time frame now. We're going back 19 years. So, <laughs> I, but, but lo and behold, the, I'm just at home the night before Thing Fest. I have friends coming in. It was, it wasn't a huge event, but it was a fun event. <laughs> back then, we had a lot of fun. You know, people came in from the States and even Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, we were just home at my house. So I had a group of friends, maybe five or six guys over. Uh, the screening was tomorrow. Phone rings. No cell phone back then. Just a landline. Yeah. I picked it up and it was Joe Polis. And we ended up talking for like 45 minutes, um, which oh, was wow. awesome. <laughs> you know, he called to say congrats on Think Fest, and he checked out Outpost 31. And he actually, a couple weeks later, sent me the mail, um, a whole bunch of photos. He printed his personal photos from the filming location trip up to, up to Canada wow. and uh, signed them all and mailed them to me. So he was really, really cool. That's so cool. And didn't we just have one of the cast members join our Facebook Outpost 31 group? Thomas Waits has been yeah. around. Yeah, he's on Facebook and Instagram. He's a he's I've met, met him twice um, in 2008 in Toronto. Uh, the last thing fest was in conjunction with Rue Morgue magazine. Familiar mm. with them? No. No, Rue Morgue, they're very big. Uh, they're, they're not as what? big as Fangoria. Uh-huh. But they're a very big Canadian horror magazine based out of Toronto. I've and probably seen Tom, it. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, they had Tom come up from New York uh, City where he lives to do the event. And we had all my stuff on display. Um, cool. And Tom's been really cool. I met him in 2017 at Monster Mania in New Jersey. Nice. Uh, where got, that's where we got to meet the other guys. Peter Maloney, uh, Richard Mazur, uh, Wilford Brimley. Um Jeez, I can't remember the other guys right now who were there. There's <laughs> so many of them. Yeah. Not Kurt, though. Kurt wasn't there. <laughs> no, no, I don't think he does smaller cons like that. No. no, but that's cool that you got to meet so many of them. It's really cool that to, to and the fact that you got to meet Wilford Brimley. And I feel like the thing is such an important film for people that only know Wilford Brimley as like the diabetes guy on commercials really need to go find that movie and see how amazing that man is. I mean, it's not the only example of his amazing acting, but I think every one of those men did just their acting in that movie stands out to me so much, even though it's not some big best picture movie or anything like that, but you have some of the best tension, some of the best character building, some of the best performances I've ever seen in any movie, to be honest. And it's crazy to think that these weren't even really all in all household names that lived on too much. These guys are much more accessible probably because they're not these a listers because they I don't know, didn't choose to or whatever, but it's amazing how that happened because the acting is so superb and maybe I should lend more credence to, to Carpenter perhaps, but. You want to see a great performance in the thing is watch TK Carter as Nulls. Watch him in all the scenes. Carpenter has a lot of amazing shots in his films and the thing is no, no, no. Uh, watch TK Carter in the background. He is phenomenal. People ask me, one of the question I get is what's my favorite scene in the movie? My favorite scene and sequence in the thing is when Nalls knocks on the door and they let him back inside. The next few minutes, three or four minute sequence, 
is awesome. It's the most tense scene in the film. Um, everyone's yeah. acting all around is fantastic. David Clement has spit coming out of his mouth. Yeah. They're so into the scene. TK Carter's terrified on his knees at, at the door. Uh, you know, goes, where were you? <laughs> That's it right there. Yeah. And everybody, I keep David in the background. I got chills. <laughs> yeah, I get chills from that scene. That's my favorite scene in the movie. I absolutely love the, uh, uh, the, the paranoia and the tension in that scene with everybody. And TK's expressions, if that's what you're referring to, like in the background, his expressions give away almost like a like a subtle breaking of the fourth wall, even almost like he's speaking for us. Like, this is fucking horrible. This is terrifying. Why are we here? It's unbelievable. His his subtle facial expressions throughout. It's amazing. Yeah, he has sheer terror on his face and, and without dialogue too, just, just showing his, his, his emotion is, is absolutely fantastic. Other great actors in there, uh, Charles Hallahan, who passed away a while ago now, I believe 97. Um, he does a fantastic job in, in the movie. I, everyone's great. Every, from the cinematography, directing, writing, acting, the set of Outpost 31. Yeah. I mean, everything was magic. And, and that's you, what made the film what it is. And obviously the set itself put together by the team and led by Rob Botin, who friggin' slept on set for like a year straight or something like that. That's a whole another story. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe a wives tale of, but, but I mean, for the most part, he was there sleeping on the set, working day in, day out until he like needed to, to take a break and, and right. it's unbelievable. And a lot of people don't even know that he wasn't the only, you know, big kahuna on the set when it comes to the effects. And especially when it comes to like the most prolific scene in the movie wasn't his. Right. Yeah. They were overloaded and had to call in Stan Winston to do the entire kennel sequence. And, uh, you know, Botine wasn't up in Stewart. Neither was Brimley. Neither were a lot of people. It was a very small crew that went up there mm -hmm. and to shoot all that stuff. Um, they did two effects sequences they had to do without the effects people. Um, the effects stuff was sent up, you know, literally in a wood crate and here, make it look real with some gel and here you go. And wow. that was the burn body of Fuchs mm. uh, and the Benning's hands and Benning's being attacked in the supply room. That was wow. all shot up in Canada. Um, and basically they just had people, you know, set it up and get the shots with it. So everything else was down in LA. Um, oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's, that's pretty impressive that um, the team was able to pull it off without, uh, you know, special effects directing being there at the time because those scenes themselves are, are also pretty prolific. Those are amazing effects scenes mm -hmm. reaching out and all that. So let's not forget that you got to go to the set and this wasn't even for research for your book. This was well before that as a fan Well before then. Yeah. So I guess we'll just jump back quick before that. I said, I sure, had a copy sure. of the VHS tape, no VCR to play it, no way to watch it. But <laughs> I was thrilled and happy because I was 11 year old kid with a copy of the thing. So fast forward to 2001. Uh, now I wanted to see the thing in the theater. Now, this is way before what we have now with this, you know, I guess they just screened the thing for the 40th or some mm -hmm. sort of nationwide. Oh, yeah. You can go see it basically everywhere. I checked and there was three places around here that were showing. So now you now they're doing it more regularly. But in 2001, that was unheard of. There was no like showing 20 year old movies. 
um, right. in the theater. That was just wasn't happening. So I wanted to see it in the theater. Absolutely, I want to make this happen. And the only way I could do it was got tricky. So I went on a website and bought the film on 35 millimeter, you know, 80 nice. pounds of film, 35 mil, uh, two cans, six reels, plus a trailer. Uh, nice. Had it shipped from the States to Canada. That was a whole other customs fiasco we wanted to get into. Um, so just crazy stuff's happening, man. Um, rented a theater, asked if they do it for a private screening. And he said, we can do it as long as we do a private showing and you rent it out, close the doors. So I did that and watched it with about 20 people. And That's it was great. awesome. That's so awesome. Absolutely was that the awesome. first one? Was that the that first, was the very like, first anniversary? One. Yeah, that was 2001 summer again, which was kind of weird because it was a summer screening again through a new way. So everything kind of synced up nice. And I owned the film, but now on film. So it was, everything was kind of like weird. Um, and then I asked the guy who ran the theater in Ontario, London, Ontario. I said, how do we do this so I can like make theater full of people and pay people can pay, just come see it or however it works. And uh, we could do that. We just needed the license from Universal. So he he had to officially rent the film and get the license. We couldn't use my film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned out that my film was better than the rental film that came from Universal in the States. So we swapped it out and used my print. But we had the rights to do it because we had the rented. the. So we had two copies of the thing on 35 mil sitting there. And <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and so now they've done it multiple times. Um, yeah. Have- so we did it eight years in a row culminating with the 2008 uh thomas waits attending and but now it's more common i've seen the thing even here in florida i went to a screening for the 35th the tampa theater is a gorgeous theater in tampa mm-hmm. from the 1920s beautiful theater and i saw the thing there i saw halloween there and i saw jaws there oh wow that's awesome <laughs> that's cool so so where are we now in the timeline well, I got to go see the thing at a John Carpenter retrospective in 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, so Outpost 31 was up and running. Uh, I had seen the thing in the theater myself and started it that fall with a thing fest screening. I heard that there was a John Carpenter event at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood, California. So I flew there for like a week and we had a great time. Um, Carpenter wasn't doing any signings or handshakings or photos, nothing. He was very strict, uh, Mm -hmm. back then, but what he was doing, um, but nonetheless, I saw Halloween, the fog escape from New York based. I think I saw almost all of the Carpenter films they were showing, uh, including the thing and got to do a Q and a with Carpenter, listen to that, which was, which was really cool. Um, that's 20 years ago already. I can't, I can't believe it. Wow. It's crazy. You know, uh, I just, I feel like the 20th anniversary was something huge because we had the video game, right? right? Which was, I'm not a gamer at all. And I found it very challenging to play, but it was fun. It was kind of cool. Yeah. I, I was so excited. I feel like I was the only one of my friends that was excited for it. Cause none of my friends were really interested or knew the thing or whatever, but I just happened to love it. And that game was awesome. And I've heard some, quiet talk here and there about a possible reboot of that project at some point or a sequel or something it may not even be an official release it may be more of a steam-based fan fan fan-made game but i'm all for it i'll support it you know anything 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Related to it. So, but, um, but yeah. So, so yeah, you're, you've, uh, you've gotten this far, you've had all these experiences and then you actually, I keep mentioning going to, uh, to Stuart, but if, if you have more before that, by all means, we can get into whatever you want. The, the highlight for me, the highlight of the thing has been seeing that the first screening in the theater and then the trip to Stuart was just perfect. Mm-hmm. Everything went perfect on that trip for it to work. Um, so there's only been two fans that have gone. So myself and Steve. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, many years later, because we went in 03, a fan by the name of Peter Abbott went up. Um, so Steve and I were talking about the idea of going and talked to my girlfriend at the time and we made it as a whole month long trip to BC in the summer to go out, go out West and throw in the thing. Um, and the thing turned out to be the highlight. And number one was the location. Uh, I'd never been that far North or probably that rural before ever in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a spectacular location. Absolutely unbelievable where we had to go to get there, you know, multiple flights, fly to Vancouver, fly, two hours north from Vancouver to Terrace and then drive, you know, six, seven hours to Stewart. Uh, the next day, drive and cross the border into Alaska at Hyder, Stewart and Hyder, the border towns, and then drive 45 minutes up Salmon Glacier Road. Um, seeing a glacier for the first time was pretty wild. Uh, that. Fifth largest glacier in Canada, and you can see it from the road, which is pretty cool. Wow. You can literally like, drive by it. And, and then just past the glacier, uh, tricky to find, very tricky to find, especially first time. Uh, you know, there wasn't a big sign announcing everything's here. I mean, we saw the mountains in the background. We knew we were in the right spot, but it was Steve, again, coming back to him, Steve Crawford was uh, the kind of a uh, mathematician tech guy. He had gone on the DVD at the time, the 98 original DVD, and uh, tape from the bonus materials printed up in color in a binder, all of the construction shots, and that is the only way we actually locked down the spot. And boy, did we lock it down because once we had it, boom, we were like 100%. Okay, now we got it. And then it gets crazier. So we had the location. We saw the knoll. We saw they, there was this kind of like this knoll down off the roads. So the road went down off like a ravine hmm. um, down to the edge of the drop off to a lake. I think it was called Summit Lake. And then in the background is Salmon Glacier to the west. And the two mountains, I forget the name of the mountains, but there's two of them clearly behind Air Post 31 um, because carpenters are always shot only facing one direction pretty much from that. Behind that set was trees, evergreen mm-hmm. trees all over. 
Antarctica, that wouldn't happen. Right. So we went down. We could see the bulldozer location right away from the photos. It all matched. There was a flat level area where they built a set on. So they bulldozed the flat area where they built the set to make the ground was very uneven there, very big rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess within minutes of being on top of the knoll, we started immediately finding burned pieces of wood. And we're thinking, there's no way. Is this the actual movie set? Pick them up, look at them. They're all gray. And we're like, okay, has to be it. Has to mm-hmm. be it. Um, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's South Coast 31. Um, and then, so we're picking up these pieces of wood burned, scattered everywhere, nails. Um, and my girlfriend at the time said, look at that. And then right where it should be in relation to the layout of the camp where the Norwegians land the chopper, where the dog runs up, there's a big, long, huge 15 foot rotor blade of a helicopter with the chassis assembly all sitting there rusted. Um, and to think that this stuff is there, but this is 2003. So we're only 21 years after the movie. True. Right now we're 40 years after. <laughs> and uh, so we go down, check it out. Sure enough, it's definitely a hydrofoil. Like it's, it's been blown up. It's been dented. It's laying there. Um, there's a the remains of the rest of the co- helicopter remains sitting there. Oh, wow. So it, we ended up bringing, cutting it off with a hacksaw that we purchased that night in town, going back up the next night. Because uh, this is north of town, the site. It's not in town. It's a good 45-minute drive up this mountain road, like literally a mountain cliffside road that kind of winds up. Nice. You go off and you're dead. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're dead. Um, I mean, this is August, early August, and there's snow everywhere, still snow melt from the previous winter, which mm-hmm. is nuts to think, you know, we're almost at the end of summer and we've got snow melting. Oh, yeah. Um, Stuart gets the highest snowfall in North America, which is one of the reasons why they chose it. Because uh-huh. they figured if we build this set in July and August of 81, by the time we get up there in December, it should be buried. And, and sure enough, it was very good. Yeah, it looked perfect. <laughs> That's crazy. And so, yeah, that that uh, rotor blade uh, was quite a project. You got it all the way back to the States, and now you got it at home with you, right? Exactly. Yeah, I actually didn't have to ship it to the states, which was pretty cool. I shipped it oh, twice right. because we were in Canada. That's right. Uh, we got it. We just drove across the border back. The site's kind of weird to reach because you see this outpost thirty one's on Canadian soil. Mm. Stewart's in Canada, but you got to go through Hyder, so you have to go into this little kind of like cutoff of the states first. So there is a border, although they're not very strict about you know they don't they'll check IDs or anything away by you pretty much. So we were worried coming back across that this guy would whoever was working the booth would say something about this 15 foot piece of metal going from the dashboard and three feet out the back. Didn't even bat an eyelash at it. So like, yeah, we typical. cut it in half and shipped it back to ourselves. Um Steve wow. sent his piece to South Carolina and I sent mine to Ontario. That's so, so cool. When I got home full three weeks later because we were there for a month and it's in total it was sitting on my front porch wrapped in cardboard and i actually that they didn't have labels at the post office up there it's very small so they use stamps to mail a 50 was 50 pounds and i'm as heavy as hell wow you know maybe we had like 100 and something stamps on there <laughs> damn and now you got a an awesome trophy at home with a yeah, very few, cool. A great, story. Road, right? yeah. great story. Great yeah. story. Probably my prize uh, possession from the film. Mm. Um, 
and the trip was just fantastic. And uh, so much stuff happened up there that in sequence that we were fortunate enough to not only find it, but be able to go back up and uh, get the rotor blade because we were thinking about not going up the first night we were there. We'd gotten into town, uh, but we couldn't resist. We ended up <laughs> driving up there in the late afternoon um, and finding it uh, fairly, pretty much without trouble. Uh, you know, a little bit, but I, I, we would not have found it without the photos and Steve working together. It would have been tricky. Yeah, triangulating yeah. all those mountains and where they were. That's yeah, crazy. very tricky. The mountains are way across on the other side. Mm. So, uh, now just other, other than the thing, it was just a wicked spot to go to. I would never have gone north naturally. Um, my personal interest, so mm. it was really neat to go up there and see it. You know, we saw some cool stuff. You know, bears crossing the road right in front of us. Just <laughs> really cool stuff. Yeah, the pictures that I've seen from your uh, from you put that YouTube collage video up on that that trip. It's breathtaking up there. It is. It's crazy. You go north and into the coldest areas, and you find some of the most beautiful places to be. Did you guys have to hike in a lot to get to get to the site itself, or was it just no? You can right pretty off much road? drive to it now. The unfortunate thing now is I know there's some fans planning on going up this year, and I was planning to go up for the 40th, but for me, I've been there and done that, and it did get pushed down on my my list because I've already done it. Yeah. So I'm doing other things, which I'm excited about. Um, I definitely plan to go back up, but what I'm uh, worried about for this trip potentially and for future is that I don't know if the site is even accessible now. Uh, mm. I, somebody just sent me a video like two days ago um, that I took a quick look at on YouTube, um, and it looks like you can only get to the glacier now. So you need to go another like mile to get to the site. But to answer your question, no, there's not a lot of hiking involved. You can pretty much, which is how they built it and got set the crew there to mm -hmm. film is there's no yeah. hiking. Yet. I mean, you've got to just go down this little ravine and onto the knoll and you're there um, wow. like maybe three, four minutes from your parked vehicles. And they had, so at the time you could drive right down onto it. Okay. Okay. I That's mean, cool. the road is still there. I think we even contemplated doing it because <laughs> we had a rented SUV from a Jimmy that we rented in Terrace, you know, six hours away from there but we decided not to try driving it down off the main road. Um, <laughs> you're talking about 40, 50 feet down this ravine, but the road that they made specifically universal would have paid for um, is still there. Wow. Definitely. That's crazy. And the whole site's pretty much bulldozed and most of the big chunks are gone, obviously. Peter went there in 2016. So that was, I don't know, 13, 13 years after we were there. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. And uh, so that's already been for six years ago now, you know, since he was there. And I know he's planning to go back up this. I believe they're planning to go in September, which is probably a smart choice. Mm -hmm. um, we were there in July in August. And in the summer, the bugs were fierce. Absolutely yeah. insane bugs. Um, and we had great weather, though. I mean, it was 75 degrees and sunny. I was wearing shorts mm. at the site. But the bugs were, were fierce, would not go again at that time of year. Um, yeah. So they're going to go when it's a little cooler. It cools off very fast up there, you know. Yeah. Um, by September, it's the days are getting short and it's getting cooler, but that stops the bugs. So we'll have to see what happens. If, if anyone goes, number one, it's a very not an easy place to reach. Multiple flights, lots of driving, rented cars, hotels. Oh, yeah. You know. I'll see. Would they, would it be, um, I don't know what the laws are like up there. Would you be able to camp right on the site if you... Oh yeah, you so can definitely camp on the site. That would be as cool. long as the as long as it's as it was when we were there. Um, there were people just parking their RVs on the side of the road, but not a lot of people. I mean, maybe okay. past two people on the whole the whole forty five minute run up there. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're not up there for the same spot. reason. <laughs> 
No, nobody would. Nobody. I, <laughs> I don't know if any fans have gone there other than Stephen I and Peter. I don't think so. Wow. That have actually gone. A couple have tried and made it as far as like Stewart, I think somebody went, but they actually didn't make it the further. You know, you're so you're so close at that point, but you know, it is tricky to get up there. So did you go a second time for research for the book or was that just the one time you went? Nope. Just the one time I went, it's a, it's a fairly big trip. So yeah, no, like I said, I definitely want to go again. Mm. Definitely. It was such a cool trip um, for more than just the thing. Like there was a lot of fun stuff to see and do and a really cool location. Um, I definitely want to go again. And, uh, and uh, I've got this really cool plaque I'd like to put at the site to mark episode 31 the film and as a memorial for Steve um, because he he and I were both floored on that trip yeah. to find the site to find the actual remains of the camp and the chopper was just like we couldn't believe it you know it was it was a really cool trip well, I really hope you can get back up there and put that plaque up that sounds perfect that's great man so let's get into the book a little bit um, obviously I know the inspiration but let's give the audience a little little info on what this book is and how it relates to the thing. Sure. Yeah. So the idea for Snowblind started as a character bio. So there was an original TV version of the thing, a TV edit that I used to have a VHF copy of that is terrible. It's absolutely horrible. Uh, I believe an exec at Universal who remained lame, nameless uh, did it. And, uh, but it was kind of interesting because it gave the, the script doesn't really give you a lot on the characters. I think they, they get three sentences each. You know, McCready plays chess, hates the cold, drinks, something like that. That's it. Yeah. Right. I don't know if they gave the actual actors that, or I think it was very brief when I remember them talking about. Um, so I thought, what if I did a character bio for them all? And I believe that this is long gone, but I did an in-depth one for each man all 12 guys. Um, but of course the focus was RJ McCready hmm. and I got a little deeper with him and I thought, you know, I started thinking about him and how I related to him a little bit in that I hated the cold <laughs> and drank a lot at the time. Um, and I thought, well, what's this guy doing in Antarctica then? Like, you know, like there was a little bit of a backstory on McCready. I'm just remembering this now from the TV edit about him working for an aircraft company and being a test pilot and having a falling out with his boss. Oh, interesting. There was a little backstory there, but I decided to abandon that and mm. do something a little different. Um, and I think my number one goal when I decided that I was actually going to do a novel was I wanted it to be standalone. I didn't just want to write something for fans of the thing, although this would definitely be for them. Um, I wanted something that everybody could read individually without and that, that's the case to this day is a lot of people i speak with about snowblind have no idea about the thing right. which is really cool i think it's really for me i'm like and i don't even need to say a thing about it you know so yeah. it's kind of neat to see them get into this book and story and character without the film at all i felt that way when i would pick up on little nods in the book and i was like oh i bet that's that's just for me that's just for me right now, <laughs> but there's, there's so many people that can read their, right over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people who had no connection to Carpenter or the thing, it went right over their heads completely. And, uh, you know, I did have a little more stuff in there too, but, uh, as I learned, you have to trim a book down and I learned a lot. Snowblind was book one. So I learned a lot. It was a learning experience. Crazy. 
um, I'd love to go back and re-edit, rewrite it completely and do it. You know, just last week I finished my second novel. So well, yeah, I can't congratulations, the difference. Man. Thank you. It's just, I'm very excited about this next book coming out. Nice. Um, so like I said, Snowblind's the first one. So you'll learn a ton of stuff, you know. Uh, it's amazing. I'm self-taught on everything with this. I, I never went to school for this at all. Um, so it's, I, I just chewed through books as a kid and movies. And, you know, I always thought one day I'd, I'd, I'd be an author and, and write books. Um, and I guess this was the path. <laughs> I guess so. It took a while to get there and then you, you got there and got you there. know, it's not a small book for your first book. This is a beast of a book. It's like almost 600 yeah. pages. You know, yeah, it's it came great... out at 161,000 words, which is too long. It fortunately just works. Uh, I did cut it down. Um, <laughs> it fortunately works uh, at that length. Uh, but the second novel is definitely more in the word count of the genre of the crime thriller noir genre. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little shorter, a um, little bit of well, quicker read, faster pacing. Fair enough. I can't wait to read it. But, uh, you know, the length, the the depth of the story, the the character development that you put forward for the main guy, the, the Snowblind was a masterpiece. I really applaud it. And not just as a thing fan, because, again, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, I want to give this to my father who doesn't really care about the thing because he would love this book. Right. It's a great thriller, man. Thank really? you. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy. It was definitely a lot of work. You know, so that's the catch probably to that is I definitely put the work in. So, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to, you know, from the original, like I said, the original concept of this, uh, kind of like the inception for Snowblind was the character bio for RJ McCready and kind of playing with that and, and then making a timeline for him. Like, where would he be in, you know, where to go to high school? Where was he born? Where to go to high school? how to become a helicopter pilot of course Vietnam War you know he's a he's a fat so that was in the bio for um uh you know on the script I think that was it mm -hmm. you know and I don't I don't know where they came up with a little more in-depth bio for the tv edit I have no idea where they even I think somebody wrote that and made that up totally unconnected to Carpenter and we know what Carpenter said about the tv edit yeah. somebody should burn burn it yeah so <laughs> things should never see the light of day yeah. exactly <laughs> and i i love how you um gave an origin story to the hat i think that yeah. was so but that's just one of those nods and we won't give any like spoilers about the novel but i think it's safe to kind of rehash some of the the influence from the thing it's such a a great way that you did it and i thought the hat was so great and it's not just some oh yeah i gotta add that in somehow you really gave that hat like some real real meaning to him and it kind of sure. yeah. now and i've yet to watch the thing front to finish since i finished Snowblind. so i and it so it's been a few months where like and i watched the thing probably yeah, once every few months about anyway. So it's about wow. time anyway. Just in the background. I don't have to sit there and pay attention to the whole thing. But it's just kind of one of those background movies at this point where I can just always have it on and it feels like home. I don't know if a cosmic horror is supposed to feel like home, but it does, you know? <laughs> I can relate. I know exactly what you're saying. And unfortunately, there's a there's a flip side to that, which is not good, is that the thing doesn't obviously doesn't scare me anymore. Mm. And when I watch the thing, um because there's another project that's actually that we were talking about earlier that i've completed and done and so i've got to make sure i put it out there i just got to organize how i'm going to do that yes. but when i watch the thing now it's a study in like 
The Thing is, is a mystery. It's definitely a mystery film because um, so many things happen in that movie uh, off screen and so many unanswered questions. Who did what, who was where, what happened, you know, uh, and then the ending, which is, again is another big question. Right. Um, yeah, fans so aren't even satisfied. We're never satisfied with even Carpenter's uh, elusive answers about the ending. We're like, no, it's, it's a million other things. <laughs> right, yeah. And he's going to keep it ambiguous like that and elusive because, you know, keep the fans guessing, keep the interest high, right? Yeah, and it really is a lot of the unspoken uh, off-screen or still on-screen, but unspoken, you know, expressions. It, a lot of it is left up to us in that movie to not only interpret, but to piece together. And yeah, it seems like we're still piecing it together. When I visit outpost 31 and see all the new theories from people just throwing it out there. Hey, just listen, nobody yell at me. I know we've been over this, but just hear me out for a second. You know, I, I just love it. It's still going. It's crazy. 2022. So obviously I've been through all those conversations starting back in 99 when I first got <laughs> online on the discussion board that was on that original thing site. So that's when I first got into the main big questions, you know, who got to the blood, uh, the ending, you know, was Blair human before or after the tool shed. And I guess after the 20 years of listening to people's theories, my own theories and ideas, uh, watching the movie countless times. And what I did was piece together the film. If we could see the whole thing, if you could watch everything, Fuchs, um, for example, the one scene where find, they find Fuchs dead, what happened? Who yeah. killed him, right? Why did they kill him? So what I did is I wrote 12 short stories that fill in the 12 big missing gaps in the thing and kind of runs the gauntlet for the film, and pieces it all together. But what I found in doing that, that it got even more interesting than I could possibly imagine. <laughs> so what I, what I wanted to do was something that was obviously realistic. So I guess, and this is, you know, if there's many fans listening to this, they're probably gonna start maybe yelling and screaming or whatever, but everyone has their own theories, but I'm gonna go with the base one that I feel and that the majority, I'm going to safely say the majority of fans believe. So was Blair taken over before or after he's locked in the tool shed? So first I'll pose that question to you Ooh. and see what you say. I say before. You believe he was taken over before he was locked in the tool shed? I do. So as the thing, now an, now an alien, he purposely, you know, had himself locked in the tool shed away from the other people? That is a really good question. <laughs> I guess I don't, I mean, I'm not prepared for this. Oh my God. I, I swear <laughs> I, I have some deep theories about it and I have looked into Blair a lot, but uh, yeah, I, I always tended to think that he was that like, so I can't answer that directly, but I will say that on outpost 31, probably weeks back, I was having a discussion with someone about the noose and some you know his perspective the person i was talking to was kind of saying like look he's obviously he was human and to that i i wonder if there's like a process of uh or like a bipolar nature in there or something you know maybe more of the thing we don't see right here's my crazy theory right? that so if he the human locked is locked in there but you know possibly uh acting out things that the human would do regardless of knowing why it's doing it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> Go right. ahead. What's your, what's your, well, that's, that's the beauty of it with these things too. There is no right or wrong. Unless it's something that completely doesn't work. 
mm-hmm. you right. know, theory. And we've seen a couple of those, like people have only seen the film a couple of times and they're throwing in their two cents. And you gotta go back and watch it a few more dozen times. Yeah, listen, buddy, there's but, rules here. <laughs> there are some rules, hard and fast. You can't, you know, you know, it was either Norris or um, Palmer infected first. And right. they're interchangeable. They are interchangeable as to who you feel a shadow on the wall is. Mm. You can go either route. So this is basically what I find interesting what I, when I started working with this. So I played with that and kind of did like a choose your own adventure. Let's put Norris first. Let's put Palmer first and let's walk it forward with each man as the thing. Wow. But what I wanted to do as a writer was write a good story. So which one would be more interesting? Which one would connect to a later event and be more interesting and cooler for want of a better word that would reconnect with something else. So it would definitely turn out to be one of the men you know, uh, mm. and have it move forward with him as the first takeover and then such and such and so on to the other men. And actually a lot of people don't get taken over. And I haven't thought this material for a very long time in my head, but it goes on to the keys. Keys, the drop keys are a huge pivotal point in the movie in regards to Blair. Mm. Uh, Benning's being taken over, Blair destroying the helicopter and the radio which in that whole scene kind of spin right there. I can't remember what night that is in, in the timeline, but there's a lot going on right there. It's wow. a lot happening. It's pretty crazy. It gets pretty heavy. Yeah. You, you're get, I need to rewatch it now. And it's not like something I haven't seen a million times, but now you got my wheels spinning. Like there's more that I've missed. Definitely. If you're still looking, then there's stuff that I've missed for sure. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You brought up that first infection to the human because I remember as when I was younger, I always thought it was Norris and his shadow, but then I heard a bunch of people on outpost 31 feeling like it was Palmer. And when I look at it now, I'm like, it almost seems like Carpenter purposely made sure the person's hair was ambiguous because when you think about Palmer, his hair is erratic. He's the stoner. It's all over the place. And I guess his, I think his silhouette would have been a little bit more crazy. Right. But then you got Norris, who's got this little fro kind of going on. His hair is just very neat. So his silhouette would be more smooth, but it's kind of right in the middle or at least enough. Maybe it's purposeful. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's just paranoia. But <laughs> No, I think it's very purposeful. And the weirdest, one of the weirdest things of dozens of weird things about this movie is that if you did, Dick Warlock is the actor who actually cast the shadow of the stomach. If you actually look at pictures and photos of him, he kind of looks a little bit like David Clennon and Charles Hallan, which is extremely bizarre because he's the ambiguous actor playing either of those men's shadow on the wall. Yeah, it's really weird. If you look at pictures of him, I'm like, this is like a stand in like he kind of then they're very different looking men. Right, right. Right. Clinton and Alahan are very different looking men. But when you look at Warlock face on, you're like, this is really weird. Another weird thing is that Fuchs, the actor, Joel Polis, has a twin in real life. Oh, now that would have been really cool to to incorporate a work within the in the film. So that would all, oh my God. Yeah. That would have been a whole (laughs) other dynamic. It's almost like if Carpenter had found out like, Oh wait, you have a twin right in rewrites. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Let's try and incorporate this into the film somehow. That could be, that could be perfect. You know? Yeah. What was the, what do you think the most challenging part of writing Snowblind was versus what was the most rewarding part of it? Wow. Okay. The rewarding part was the completion of the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the day of actually completing it 
and realizing that I did write quite a lengthy novel that I was fairly happy with. And then of course, seeing it actually published that first day, I was like, wow, you know, that was the, 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 the sweating. There was a lot of, like I said, work, sweat, tears to make this reality. Mm -hmm. I'm actually seeing the book. That was the most rewarding. Hardest part, like we already talked about earlier, probably that initial day one. Mm -hmm. I think I remember the actual day. It was November of 2019. Um, and it was like, I got to start this. Like, I've been putting it off for months, going back, tweaking the outline, tweaking the outline. And I'm like, that, that really did help. Yeah. You know, it really worked the characters and the story and kind of spun the end around a bit. But I think that the day one, uh, getting going, and then just the caliber of writing, since it was my first novel, was um, in the edits, you know, getting, getting having it critiqued, because it was edited by uh, acquaintances, mm -hmm. um, taking their feedback and working with it. And they were right. Everyone was absolutely right. Um, but that's also very hard when you've just done you know, six and a half months and okay, no, this is all going to be redone. Whoa. <laughs> you know? right. and, and I took everything as you're supposed to, you know, everything, the good, the bad, um, and did a lot of heavy editing with Snowblind, a lot of heavy mm. editing. Yeah. That's uh, the scariest part uh, looking at anything I've ever worked on. And I think that's, it's not necessarily a conscious part that holds me back, but I know that when I'm consciously working on something, knowing that at the end of it, I'm going to need to kind of destroy part of it and build it up in a different way or something. It's, I think the laziness is what gets me more than anything. And I need to, to reprioritize in some ways, but uh, it's such a heavy undertaking. And again, I commend you for uh -huh. just biting the bullet and doing it um, when it comes to the editing process and, and having, what would your recommendation be? Cause you know, you're saying you had acquaintances edit it. It's not like you're going to some big office and having professionals edit it. What, what kind of advice would you give, uh, you know, a new writer uh, when it comes to that process? I mean, for me, it's like, oh, my God, that's do I trust their opinion fully? Are they a writer? Well, they're not a writer. It's mm -hmm. a million questions I know will be going through my head. So I'd love to hear what your perspective is on that just to wow. help me out a little bit. So I think for me, I was a I'm a movie fan. Yes. Yeah. Huge experience with movies as just as a fan and a viewer. Um, what I was trying to do, what I learned, the learning experience for me through Snowblind, the big shift with that aha moment in writing was what I was trying to do was watch Snowblind as a movie in my head and then write it down as a book. And that doesn't work. It's uh. actually the other way around. <laughs> the words on the page lift into the reader's head and paint the movie in their head. So you've got to be careful that you're just not copying down a movie. It works the other way. And the editing process is extremely powerful. Um, how you word a sentence and a, a paragraph of sentences. Um, yeah. It's extremely powerful how little edits can change the meaning of a sentence or the scene in the reader's head. What comes first? Because you're, you're painting it word by word. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is all just, again, stuff I've taught myself just, just doing this, just diving in and doing it. Um, but again, it's a learning process. So that's probably, I think that aha moment of how the words are painting the picture in the reader's head one by one. Yeah, They're that helps. Each word in sequence. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you worded that. That really brought it to life for me. And I have been doing exactly that for years with the 
you know, viewing a movie that I'm trying to, mm -hmm. to, to make in my head and then putting it on paper and man, Hey, maybe you just gave me a whole new perspective. I really appreciate that. So your words are putting the picture and seeing everything into the reader's head as a movie because they're mm -hmm. seeing it as a movie, but with words lifting the other way, not words, not a picture you're writing out. So when you kind of, that was one thing I understood, I grasped finally, and then it actually got smoother. The other thing is that practice makes perfect. I noticed as snowblind went on over the six and a half months, it got easier, right? And the caliber rose. So mm -hmm. I went back and re-edited the first three or four, two or three parts heavily with the experience that I picked up over the six and a half months. And I also did that with the second novel as well. So again, the same thing happened. The caliber increased as I kept going. Wow. So it's almost like working out. The first yeah. month is tough. Second month gets easier. Third month easier. Exact same thing with writing. So it is a skill mm -hmm. that you that you learn definitely. That's good to know. And it's also like, um, sorry about that. Um, another thing I was curious about your perspective. I'm actually currently going through this, so this will be active advice. <laughs> um, I'm at a point in something I'm working on where I could really go two completely different ways. And I'm not sure the best, most efficient, or even what will satisfy me. What's the best way to, to decide between the two. And I'm okay. curious if you've ever run into something like that, mm -hmm. did, did you follow both of them for a while? Like what did, what did, how did you handle something like that? That's a great question that I can definitely relate to the thing completely, 100%. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what your specific two avenues are, writing project, film project. I'm oh, it's, it's like a, well, I'm, I'm technically writing, it feels like I'm writing a novel, but I'm not, I'm writing an audio drama. <laughs> okay. So it's, even has another layer of got to express even more because it's not going to, or I don't know, it's, it's a different dynamic for sure, but okay. All in all, it's it's yeah, a plot divergence, basically. It's do I do this now or is that too soon? Or should I go with this other way? I don't know. Should I be more specific? I can if you want. It's basically like very beginning of the story. It's like, do I take this? Do we take this bad guy hostage right now or do we let him escape and we meet him later down the road? You know, and I know that you don't have any context to what I'm writing, obviously, but it's just how would you handle a crossroads of any kind in, in, in there? Would you follow both plots for a certain amount of time? Hey, okay. Okay. Absolutely. You're nodding. So I'm, they say that writers fall into two categories, film and, and novels is plotter and pantser. So you're the plot ahead or you go by the seat of your pants. I cannot go. I, I haven't tried and I wouldn't dare go by the seat of my pants. I think I would just end up writing something boring and paint myself in a corner, write myself into a corner. Mm -hmm. um, so with that scenario, what I would do is exactly what I did with Snowblind, exactly what I did with Fragments of the Outpost, the 12 anthology short stories, mm -hmm. is run them through and see where they go, right? Is it Norris first or Palmer first? Let's see. Oh, this one's kind of like, meh. But if I make him first, this can lead to that. Oh, shit. That's a no-brainer. Okay. Right? right? So now fans might not like that because some fans might be dead set that it's Palmer first or Norris first, and they might <laughs> hate it from the get-go. But that's the beauty. It's no one's right, no one's wrong. I'm only presenting possible scenario but i think the scenario might be a really good one because the story that comes after is kick-ass so apply that to what you're doing you know i will i will and you know 
it's funny that the answer is a pretty simple one. It's like, do the work. <laughs> it's like, don't just, don't just hope that you're picking the right direction and fly by the seat of your pants. Like, that's another thing that I don't really, you know, I'm not going to really ask you too much about, but maybe I'll ask you off, off air about, about how you outline if, if you have, I mean, if you do have any advice in that category, cause that's something I've never done. And I'm learning very early on in this project. Yep. If I want this to be a success, I can't fly by the seat of my pants. And that's something that I've done every time I've started writing and I've never finished any of those projects. So, so hmm. definitely switch over to plotting then. Yeah. yeah, definitely try plotting a story out. Um, right now, this is all just stuff that I've taught myself and learned right now. I'm looking at a 10,000 word outline. Uh, before I would start writing a novel. Um, so my wow. third novel is right there. Right before we got on the air here, I was editing my plot outline for my third novel. And I'm just coming up on 10,000 words. And I feel like it's I could start writing this book very soon now. Like it's, it's, it's there. It's solid. You know, the ending, the beginning, the whole arc of the characters, mm -hmm. is, it's all right there. Um, and thinking a lot about my readers too, with with uh, with Snowblind and the pacing, is thinking about my reader. Like, okay, like myself last night with the Dean Coots book, somebody's going to be sitting there reading this book. They've got their own life going on, bills, kids, pressure, life stress. You got to write something that they're going to keep their mind on, that they're going to want to keep reading. Yeah. So that's the whole thing to do with pacing. Is just you know watch watch your pacing and stuff. But try, I would try plotting. Definitely yeah. plot the story so you've got at least. You know, it can be one page, just this guy's going to come here, 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 and this is going to happen at the end. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Really. Um, I'm going to apply these things and see if I have more success this time around. I probably will. I don't know. It's probably a whole nother talent or skill is I don't know how writers uh, do the pantser path. Yeah. I have no idea how that can even work because the stuff I'm doing is not possible doing it that way. I mean, right. because these connections and these stories, characters cross over when I'm, I'm thinking of doing multiple books in the same universe that cross over and wrap behind each other. I mean, this stuff has to all be done ahead of time. And I don't know, do you know of any author that, because when I decided I was going to do this and write a series of books set in the same universe across a strict timeline, but I'm starting now. So now is the chance to do something original. Mm -hmm. What if I did all the books together in one go and had them all cross over decades over a century so in one scene of one book something's happening in the background of another and it's from another book so i don't know if any authors i'm sure they have everything's been done at this point um <laughs> that's, but a, I need that's to, a beautiful I'm, idea i'm kind of avoiding googling that in case it's obviously been done you know so <laughs> yeah just be ignorant to it just like hey i didn't listen it was novel to me. And in some ways you can stay original like that some ways, but uh, I, again, I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of read it, mass reading, reading many authors, watching many films. Yeah. I mean, the only author that I know of who I never heard mention outlining is, is Stephen King. And he's That's a, right. <laughs> he's a different breed. I mean, I read his, his memoirs, his, his masterclass, whatever you want to call it, the on uh -huh. writing book. That was one of the most, amazing books i ever read on writing and i'm looking back on it thinking there's nothing about outlining there's nothing about like diagramming a plot i mean maybe he just didn't mention it but i i don't know he just told us it the readers you go in there for eight hours and you don't come out basically <laughs> i don't I know, know how he does it that's a savant <laughs> i'm sure yeah he probably was a talented writer of course i'm sure he <laughs> 
Uh, I question it a little bit about the plotting, about how much he might actually have plotted. Because yeah. maybe I said it's only a page, but a page is enough to, to write a novel. You could definitely make a novel out of a page. Um, True. But I'm thinking of two books of his that just trying to run examples of trying to run like like the Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. uh, The Long Walk, and 11-22-63. So they're different novels. Now I can see The Long Walk being, got this base idea yeah. and go with it. I can see that being done that way but then when i come around and see 11 63 or the shawshank redemption yeah maybe he's changed his ways he's he he, if he's if he winged those (laughs) but i don't see how you can wing a book like like the time travel book i don't see how that's possible and actually i read that he spent um a long time i don't know the exact time but but like a month or two on location researching the novel so 11 63 yeah i mean i'm sure there's exceptions to the rule and all that I, maybe yeah. at the time he wrote on writing he was uh doing things a little differently i'm not sure well, on writing when did that even come out i think that, that was late 90s i think yeah very yeah, late 90s there. or 2000 so yeah. i'm not sure but um but yeah this has been really great getting to know you better and then and, and you and i could literally go on for hours about the thing and you know i do a movie cat a movie podcast with a buddy of mine and we strictly talk about everything movies so who knows maybe we'll ask you to come on sometime we'll just that would be shoot really the cool. shit you know because we both love carpenter through and through but the thing is so prolific and just so prominent i mean i know that when you and i first initially spoke i'm not even sure if you remember that i was coming at it from a much more uh dark and conspiratorial angle towards yeah. you and it's like I've learned a lot as a podcaster throughout the year. It's like, you know, if I want to branch out and not just look into what's weird, I'm going to have to, you know, embrace more general topics. And the fact is the thing can, I could talk about it without any weirdness for, you know, forever, you know, but I do, I would like your opinion on this and Carpenter in general. Uh I, in my community of tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists, Carpenter's films are so much more than he ever claims. And I was just curious in your heart of hearts, if you feel like as Carpenter, as the director that he is, would he even really give you the deep, deep reasons he wrote things and what the overall themes in his head were, or would he just slap a topical thing on and just walk away? You know, that's been my perspective, but what's yours? Uh, I would say definitely it's, it's his inner workings are inside him. And I think I've, I've never actually spoken to Mr. Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave us some feedback on outpost 31 for the 35th anniversary through his agent. Um, he does have two copies of Snowblind in his office. I have oh. no idea, you know, assigned to him. I have no idea if he's read them or not. I haven't heard anything. I don't mm-hmm. expect to. Um, but I believe from what I've read, many magazine articles going back from the 80s through, I believe, you know, he's very anti-Hollywood. Yeah. I think that Mr. And I'm no expert on Carpenter. I am not a Carpenter expert by any means. The Thing is my favorite movie. Um, but from this, going from what I've read, gleaned off the you know, 20-some years of The Thing, is anti-Hollywood. I believe his genre should not have been horror. I really think, and actually confirmed this from producers who work closely with him said no Carpenter should definitely veered away from the horror very quickly and should have gone into uh drama westerns uh, or crime crime look at assault on precinct 13 Dude, That's a great yeah. film. absolutely yeah you know? good enough to remake and I think he would have found his footing stronger and longer in that genre 
and I know I've, I've had countless people who've worked right alongside him say that they say the exact same thing. And uh, I think they're right. I think that I think they're right. And I think that he was, I think really picked this up over the years that he was hurt very badly by the reaction reception, film reception and the financial reception to, to the thing. Mm -hmm. And I believe in 82 when he, I believe when he cut that final version of the thing, I he saw what we're seeing today. Yeah. Fantastic film. And he, I think he was very surprised by the reaction of what happened. And, you know, there's been a few film critics who are still alive today. Some of them, who actually pulled the review and said, I've got to change my review. That that was at the time I saw the film and I'm pulling it. I, now I don't know their names, but I know it's been done. Definitely. Wow. They went back and said, no, this is a standout film, 10 out of 10. Good on them. Yeah. It's rare. And mm -hmm. it's, it aged like a fine wine. And of course, oh, like absolutely. you said, Carpenter knew it right off the bat what he had. Yeah. I think, I think everybody with the film knew it. And I think everybody was shocked. And I think, the, it, the film disappeared very quickly from theaters. I think in 10 days, in some places, it was completely long gone. Yeah. And that was it. And then it came out on video, I think, a year and a half later for rental, mm -hmm. where it found it's really started to find its footing with, with viewers and fans. Um, but I think that had a lasting effect on a lot of people uh, with the film. Yeah, I well, think Carpenter created an allegory on par with Lord of the Flies. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch plot wise, but I mean, he paints a picture of humanity among those 12 men in mm -hmm. a crisis, in my opinion. And it's just and I think that's the nature of his his work. Right. I mean, as he left the ending ambiguous, it's kind of like you can see more and more of what he was possibly thinking and saying the more times that you look into that film and the deeper you look at every scene and every mm -hmm. delivery. So, yeah. Well, Todd, this has been really great. I really appreciate you coming on and having this interview with me and I definitely appreciate the writing advice and I might bug you for some more eventually. If you don't mind. <laughs> no worries. No problem <laughs> at all. I tell you, I'm, I'm having a blast with, with what I'm doing and I'm very happy that the thing kind of was the catalyst, uh, the inception for me to actually keep writing now. So, I mean, that this was what this whole thing was from back to 1984 to now, I'm definitely aware of that. It's quite clear in front of me that this was the path. And uh, I'm very excited about the next book, which comes out in December. Excellent. Do you have, what's the name of it? Hurricane Hole. So it's the same Hole. genre. It's a crime noir thriller. And it's also interestingly in the same universe as Snowblind. So this one is set in August 2004. So we're what? We're 22 years down the road. Okay. Um, it all takes place here in Florida during Hurricane Charlie. Wow. Oh, that's going to be exciting, man. I really, really can't wait to read it, man. I'll be picking it up. I hope everybody else checks out Snowblind. Seriously, Thing fans, non-Thing fans, you will love Snowblind. It's a riveting novel. It's great. It's a great thriller. Uh, Todd, if, uh, if you'd like, I can let my audience know where they could reach out and find you. That's what sure, we usually do website, here. Uh, website, toddcameron.net. Uh, basically everything is linked from there. I have, uh, of course, Snowblind is, is ebook and print paperback on Amazon. And uh, if you subscribe to my mailing list, you get a uh, ebook of my novella Midnight Pass, which is a, a shorter read, but it's uh, again, a Florida noir thriller. Nice. Excellent. All right. Uh, and also, of course, Outpost 31, 
Right. Bring it on in. Come on, everybody that hasn't uh, joined us yet in the thing sphere, because it's uh, it's fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah, everybody, please go check out Snowblind. Todd, thank you again for, for being here. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>